0: As a small business owner, I've had my share of accounting, tax, bank feed, and app issues. Some could say I'm a mess, kind of like some of your clients. But as a reflect on the last three years of my business, the one app that I've had not any problems with is OnPay. It's been set it and forget it payroll. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. Ever wished
1: you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. And here's the kicker. It's totally free. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark.
0: So this is the crazy numbers. A thousand taxpayers that earn over a million a year failed to file returns over multiple recent years, some owing potentially $34 billion in taxes. So basically people just don't file taxes. They just don't care.
1: And they get away with um, it?
0: And they get away with it. They said the top 500 high-income individuals who still have not filed returns for each year from 2017 to 2020, so that's three years they have not filed returns, Uh oh, $923 million. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary.
1: David, I had a really great customer experience the other day. A great user experience. At an accounting firm? No, at a parking lot. <laughs>
0: A parking lot. That's where
1: we're (laughs) at. But no, I mean, usually paying for parking is not an easy thing these days. I don't know about you, but every time I go to a place that has some sort of digital pay for parking system, right? We don't have the, the, you don't put coins in the meters anymore. Like it usually doesn't work very well. Like the coins were easier. You know, examples are in LA, you put your credit card into the parking meter and like you can never read the screen because the screen is all washed out because of
0: <laughs> the sun,
1: the, <laughs> of the sun, right? And you, just, you never know how much parking you have left. Or then there's these like centralized parking systems where they, the whole lot has just got one machine at the end of the lot and you have to go over to that lot. You have to remember your license plate number, put your license plate number into the machine. And then you forget your license plate numbers, so you have to go back to your car and then you have to go back to the machine. Then you have to go take the piece of paper from the machine and put it back in your car on Dr. the dash. God. You know, it's just like terrible. And so I actually had- well, You got the apps, right? There's all these apps and you're like,
0: oh. I have to, I, I, do I really <laughs> trust this app as a real app? I'm gonna put my credit card for $3. <laughs> yeah,
1: you gotta download an app just to pay for parking and you gotta sign up and create a login. Uh, and it's just so so much friction. And I was in Phoenix and I had an experience that was the easiest ever. And here's how it worked. It was so simple. Everybody should do this with their parking lots. There was a sign like on the wall and it said text this number. Like just text this text this word to this number. And then it texted me back and it said great. Here click this link to pay for your parking. I click the link, it takes me to a web page. I put in my license plate number and I can put in my payment information, right? And and then it just starts charging me and I don't have to say how long I'm going to be there. It just checks me in to that parking lot. And then when I leave, I just use the same link to stop the charge, to like stop the time. So the meter is all accessible via a link in text. So I don't have to download an app. I don't have to go use a machine. It's all on my phone.
0: Yeah. And you don't have to, and and hopefully that QR code you scanned is like legit, takes you to a proper site. Yeah. But but you have really eliminated walking back and forth, memorizing things. You know.
1: So this goes to accounting practice management software. Any developers listening, figure out how to make it so that clients can upload documents via a link in text so they don't have to download an app. It just takes them to a mobile optimized website where they can then respond to questions. They can upload documents. Let clients text with their accountant. And if, if they want to download the app, then you could bring that experience into the app via the link right? But don't force them to do it. It just creates friction. So
0: yeah, because yeah, you, you know, it adds eight steps for you to pay for, all you want to do is pay for the parking yeah and not have all those other steps.
1: And just like uh, a client, all they want to do is upload their W2. They
0: don't need to download an app and create an account
1: to do that securely. Yeah.
0: It, it's actually funny. I have uh, and I don't want to deep aggregate on app news, but um, CPA charge, they had an announcement this week that they they're now adding the ability to invoice directly through the app through their app to send their clients and the client can pay it, right? But up to this point, I've had this experience with three different firms with CPA Charge. You go to the CPA Charge web to pay. They have a place for you to pay. right? It's basically an empty screen. And a field says, enter invoice number. So now I gotta go find the invoice and get the invoice number. Then it's like enter your customer number. Then I gotta go find a different email number my customer number. Then I gotta type in the amount. Yeah. And to, to create, and I couldn't believe, like I was just shocked people put and CPA charge—that's the experience. But now yeah. CPA charge apparently this week launched some new features to eliminate that friction. If you ask that me, ties back to what you're saying.
1: Every paper invoice, every digital invoice should have a QR code on it and a link in case somebody can click it. But a QR code, and you just scan the QR code, and it takes you to the page where you can enter your payment information and pay, and it all syncs back to the invoice. Like, why is that so hard?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I no. always imagined I'd want to give people a. a a pay page, pay your invoice, and there's like 20 buttons. There's like a PayPal button, an Amazon button, uh, Apple Pay button, like 50 ways to pay. Like, what? Like I don't care, just pay me. Yeah, like, Here's here's all the buttons you could, ways you could pay me. So we're done
1: ranting about products. Okay. Let's talk about the news, right? We got so much to cover today. My top story is how Trump defrauded banks, according to the judgment uh, by the judge in the case of New York versus Trump. And I've been digging into it. I'm eager to talk about that. I also have a story about the top cities to be an accountant. The top cities. I can't wait to hear. To be an accountant. (laughs)
0: Uh, You may be surprised. David, what's on your agenda? We could quickly touch on the government shutdown. There's a little bit more news about that as of this morning at 5 a.m. And uh, the IRS revolving door. There's a hearing for a new uh, IRS counselor for their uh, head of of chief counsel. And in that hearing, a bunch of crazy numbers came up about millionaires and their taxes. And the other big one was, I I just blanked out. Well, it's all right, we'll get to it. Oh, the gun companies, yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Chase pressured into it not to serve gun companies.
1: Interesting. Well, I remember we talked about that a while ago where um, the credit card companies were adding in like a charge code, a new code, merchant code, specifically for gun sellers. And this was, it was, we were anticipating this would be used to basically prevent them from using traditional payment, credit card payment rails by a lot of firms, like exclude them. Right. So uh, let's dig into our stories. Do you mind if I start with Trump? Go ahead, start. You know, that's the big news, right? Uh, So yes, this was the big story all over the internet All over all the news sites, a judge has ruled that Donald Trump defrauded banks and insurers while building his real estate empire. Judge Arthur N. ruling in a civil lawsuit brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, found that Trump and his company deceived banks, insurers, and others by massively overvaluing his assets and exaggerating his net worth on paperwork used in making deals and securing loans. And I was curious, like, what exactly... What exactly, how exactly this happened, right? What was the nature of the financial statement fraud, and the one bit of news that that got picked up all over the place was my favorite part in the story, uh, which is the size of donald trump's
0: oh gosh, I don't know what I'm sure you say next Trump tower
1: <laughs> triplex apartment uh, trump tower okay yeah so so um <laughs> So Trump's personal Trump Tower triplex apartment was valued at up to 327 million in financial statements from the Trump organization. It is just under 11,000 square feet, 4 feet shy of that, 10,996 square feet. Trump falsely claimed that it was 30,000 square feet. That's 3 times bigger than it actually is and inflated the value as a result, like pretty hard to get around that fact. The Seven Springs Estate in Westchester County was valued at 291 million in statements, despite appraisals of 25 to $30 million for the property. Aberdeen Golf Course in Scotland was valued assuming 2,500 luxury homes could be built when local authorities had only permitted 1,500 homes with severe development restrictions, another size inflation there. Valuations for properties like 40 Wall Street and Trump's stake in Voronado partnerships were inflated by hundreds of millions compared to appraisals. And and basically, that's the gist of it, is that a lot of these properties were given values in financial statements issued by Trump to support loans for banks, right, to apply for loans that were
0: way, way inflated. Is it criminal to... Do this when you apply for loans. I mean, you're, I guess you're kind of defrauding them, but at the same time, don't they have? Don't these banks do due diligence and be no. like, "Oh, by <laughs> the way, we checked into the the laws in that city, and they're not going <laughs> to let you build those that many houses."
1: Well, I guess you know the banks either didn't do it or they didn't care,
0: right? So, uh, what? How much money? At what point? How many millions have to take place before you do due diligence? I'm always shocked that these numbers just are so big and it feels it never feels that like there's due diligence. In the meantime, yeah. you can't park a car without, you know, <laughs> without a passport these days. Look, I'm just I'm just
1: what I want to do with this story is just talk about what the judge said. Okay? okay, so the judge this, you know, the judge is saying that Trump made false financial statements claims and that is a crime. Now, this wasn't a criminal this isn't a criminal case. It's a civil case. So, Nobody's going to go to jail for this, but there are consequences, and we'll get into that. I I, before I do that, though, I want to get into some other uh, issues with the financial statements, and that's what really got my attention about this is like the false falsification of financial statements, right? We're accountants, so so there was a false classification of non-liquid assets as liquid cash, according to the judge. Specifically, Trump had a thirty percent limited partnership interest in Vornado entities. Vornado, Vornado entities that own buildings. As a limited partner, Trump had no right to use or withdraw funds from the Vornado partnerships. Nonetheless, Trump's financial statements classified as 30% Vornado stakes, totaling tens of millions of dollars as cash or liquid assets. And they were liquid. Pretty clear there. So that is a material misstatement and was done to mislead recipients of the financial statements about his true financial condition. Now, you know, if if they were a public company, right, this would be SEC fraud. Like people would be going to jail for this, right? But they're a private company. The evidence also showed that from 2013 to 2020, Trump's financial statements applied a 15 to 30% brand premium to the valuations of certain Trump branded golf courses like Trump National Golf Club in Jupiter and Trump National Golf Club in Los Angeles. This added tens of millions of dollars in value attributed to the Trump brand name. However, The financial statements also expressly stated that the goodwill attached to the Trump name has significant value that has not been reflected in the preparation of the financial statement. So they added it to the value of the properties, but then they said in the financial statements that they had not done that. (laughs) Now, here's the consequence of all this, is the judge basically said, the judge canceled the business certificates for a bunch of entities controlled by the Trump organization, Trump family. Uh, the Trump Organization, Inc., the Trump Organization, LLC, GJT Holdings, LLC, uh, the Trump Old Post Office, LLC. I think that's the one that holds the uh, the hotel down in Washington, D.C. Like all of these are now going to be dissolved. And so Trump could lose control. Uh, the Trump Organization could lose control over these properties. I mean, they're not going to lose their ownership interest in them, but they could lose control. Yeah, so now some other stuff is going to go to trial. But that's that's the
0: main thing. Yeah. Just, just making up financial statements. Yeah, I mean, the question
1: is, too, like, what is the financial penalty going to be, right? Because Letitia James is, is looking for hundreds of millions of dollars or at least tens of millions. I think it might be over 200 million in penalties. And that's going to be the big question, is, is will there be financial penalties for this? Um, the banks that were involved in this that are mentioned in the decision include Deutsche Bank. They were a big lender to the Trump Organization. They received false financial statements related to loans for properties. Uh, ladder Capital and AXA Financial. They provided insurance coverage and AXA employees were indicted in Manhattan for facilitating suspect valuations. So that's insurance fraud there. So that is your summary of the financial fraud in the Trump New York state case.
0: Financial fraud. I guess since you're talking about banks, you want to jump into the uh, Intuit pressure? Yeah, let's, guns.
1: Yeah, let's talk about it. Like so you said Chase and B of A were pressuring into it not
0: to work with gun. Was it gun companies yeah, or what, so, like gun sellers? What? So in general, right, if you think about all of us with the clients, right, there's merchant services. And the merchant service companies all have a list of things you're not allowed to use the merchant terminals for. Cannabis is a great example, right? That's why all those cannabis businesses are cash, because they can't get credit card terminals, right? For master and visa Match card. Well, Senator Ted Cruz, one of his um, constituents reached out to him and this all took place around August 1st behind the scenes. So Ted Cruz wrote a letter to Intuit about being banned, this this, this owner of a gun store, and he was just uh, banned blindly. Well, in this letter, and I'm gonna read this part of the letter, When my staff approached Intuit about this issue, your company explained that its banking partners, JP Morgan and Bank of America, demanded that Intuit create and enforce bank policies regarding firearm sellers and manufacturers. After my staff met with those banks, Intuit clarified that Bank of America required it to prohibit gun manufacturers from using QuickBooks payroll services, while JP Morgan required Intuit to restrict gun sellers from using QuickBooks payment processing services. Now, J.P. Morgan acknowledged that it indeed was a source of Intuit's payment processing services policy restricting firearm sellers. Bank of America, however, denied that it ever given Intuit any instructions related to firearm manufacturers or sellers. Intuit insisted that Bank of America did. So there's a little infighting up at the top levels there. And so as of August 1st, uh, the gun provisions have been removed by Intuit. So So if if, if you're a gun store, gun manufacturer, you could use QuickBooks. Merchant Services and QuickBooks Online Payroll as of August 1st. Okay. Um, so it's funny because this reminded me of a podcast I listened to about a year ago called Hot Money. And it's chasing like, who runs all the money in porn? And it's all tied back to Visa and MasterCard and what they're doing and ultimately what they're doing is they they dictate what's acceptable and not acceptable. Like, oh, Dave, David on your uh, OnlyFans, Paige, you're allowed to do these types of sexual acts. And this guy over here can't do these. They, they're determining what we can and can't do as a yeah. policy um, Credit, for the world. Pay, payments rails dictate speech. It's sort of like
1: polit- political money too, right? It's like yeah. if, you, if you can't get the money, then you can't speak.
0: And this has been true for political views. Do you remember the Canadian, they had the truckers protests about a year ago? Yeah. And they shut down all the Venmo donations. People were sending them Venmo. They shut all that down. Intuit themselves with MailChimp. In 2021, they uh, shut down a second amendment rights company, turned off all their accounts, right? Uh, And then I've, I've heard a story from, I've heard this from accountants because this becomes a nightmare where you might have a client that has five or six legit business entities but maybe they have this other thing on the side. That will shut, down. and they own a gun store. So I have, I have a Burger King and McDonald's, I have all these businesses. It'll shut down all their merchant services for the whole thing. Yeah. So there's risk to your clients and, and this, and then sometimes it's always, just stupid stuff. Always have multiple merchant accounts. Yes, and then it's also stupid stuff. I've seen, um, and I, I've gotten this call on my cell phone from an accountant whose client got denied for paying bills because the accountant bought nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. But that's on a list of like dangerous goods somewhere else. And because of that, all their merchant service and all their payment stuff got shut down. They couldn't pay their other vendors because they couldn't buy nitrous oxide. So this is, it's just something to be very aware of that like these policies, because people sometimes get matted into it. it, It's being driven by the big players. It's Visa, MasterCard, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America. They're deciding what we are allowed and not allowed to do as citizens to some extent. It's crazy. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is built for accountants. And with 30 plus years of payroll experience, they can be the payroll partner you can always rely on. They offer a dashboard to manage all your clients in one place. And when I say manage, I probably should say balance that fine line between control and delegation. OnPay lets you keep 100% control. You can delegate payroll to someone at your firm or hand off payroll duties to your client. But no matter who runs payroll, OnPay always takes care of all tax payments and filings, even local filings. And with integrations with QuickBooks Online, Xero, and QuickBooks Desktop, you can use OnPay across your entire client base regardless of the accounting GL they are using. OnPay's partner program offers free payroll for your firm, discounts or a rev share, and a dedicated support team of in-house payroll experts who will do all the heavy lifting. From setting up your dashboard to adding your clients and their employees, they'll even enter any prior wages to make it easy to switch. If you're looking for a great product with great support to match, check out OnPay. To learn more about switching your clients to the award winning OnPay payroll and HR, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promoslash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O N P A Y. OnPay, switch to better payroll.
1: Well, David, since you brought up payments, I've got a fun video to play for you. Uh, and before I do that, I want to welcome all of our live stream viewers. Thank you, Christopher, Tino, Brandon, for chatting in. If you have thoughts on what we're talking about, uh, you can heckle us. You can add your commentary. We see it all coming in from LinkedIn, from YouTube. We don't see the Twitter, but we see LinkedIn and YouTube comments here, and we'll uh, we'll 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 read them. We might even put them up on the screen there. And if you are listening to the podcast feed of this and you want to see our faces, you want to interact with us live, we go live on Fridays and you can subscribe to our channel on YouTube, The Accounting Podcast, and you'll get notified. It's usually around 10 a.m. Pacific, a little after that. Um, We don't always make it right at the top of the hour. We love to uh, hear from you and we want to know what's top of mind for you. So do let us know the accounting podcast on YouTube and we just broke the uh, 2,000 subscriber mark since we started doing it Congratulations. I think earlier this year was the first time we really started doing this so uh, thanks everyone alright so this is a video from 19 I think it's 1996 this is a guy at Burger King and it has something to do with payments
0: <laughs> alright let me see what will it be we here to go uh, would you like ketchup on that well uh, large or small fry uh,
1: Cash or credit? What? The home of the Whopper is offering
2: cash or credit? I think it's pretty bad if you have to use a credit card when you go to a fast food restaurant for something as little as $3.10.
0: If I use my GM card and I get a 5% rebate, if I eat here long enough, I'll be able to buy a pickup truck.
1: Burger King bosses (laughs) say workers won't have to figure out how much change the customer gets back.
0: I just hope it doesn't slow things down at the cash,
1: cash and carry that people are going to be having to call New York and get, get the confirmation or, you know, whatever it is, because when I want a Whopper, I want it now.
0: Just another way to spend money. I'm sure it'll work for people on vacation when they don't have to do something, but I can't imagine it working on a day-to-day basis here.
1: So far, the smallest credit has been for $2.50, the largest, just over 10 Jamie Costello, News Channel 2. So that was actually 1993. So it's been thirty years since taking a credit I, I think card. I worked
0: at Burger King in '91. So, <laughs> uh,
1: let's see who posted that. That was WMar Two News on Instagram, doing a flashback to their reporting.
0: And now, a lot of fast food places, like we've talked about this previously in the show, are getting rid of cash completely. You have to use credit cards. <laughs> at Lots of places. Going back to the
1: Trump story, Brian asks. I don't understand how Trump could get a loan and they didn't look at the values. Which accountant gave Trump's bank a comfort letter? Probably (laughs) Alan Weisselberg, the uh, Trump CFO, who was, you know, pled guilty to a bunch of stuff. Yeah, well, I think, you know, let's just just say it like it is. A lot of these banks don't do proper due diligence on celebrities because they think, well, these people are famous. We're going to get our money back. We don't need to actually, like, take, you know, we don't need to actually do the work we're supposed to do. The same thing with like financial analysts, too. I don't think a lot of them read all the financial statements. Like, do you really think that like the guy at Chase, who's like 26 doing financial analysis, actually read all the SVB <laughs> financial statements? <laughs> I doubt it. Finance bro. Yeah. I mean, this is it. We're, this is the world of finance bros. It wasn't an accountant. Oh, well, it wasn't an accountant who gave out the loan. It's a loan officer, right? So. By the way, we had somebody ask for your OnlyFans page, David. So you might need to spin one up if you don't have it, or or your secret OnlyFans page.
0: Um, you have to hit me in the DM. Slide in my DMs. Slide in his DMs. DMs.
1: Uh, you wanna you wanna talk about the top cities to be an accountant? You wanna yes. t- you wanna take a guess
0: I, at what the top cities I, to be an accountant? Are? I already saw the list. So I'll, oh. let you, I'll, I'll I'll pretend I didn't, and I'm gonna be really surprised.
1: Okay, cool. This was a story in Forbes Advisor. Whether you're pursuing an online accounting degree or you've already graduated, you may be wondering which cities offer the best prospects for your accounting career. In this article, we'll explore 99 best places in the U.S. for accountants to develop their careers. Keep learning. Um, let's see. What was the criteria for this?
0: There's a table lower on the page, I think. that yeah. they, they comp- It's like a spreadsheet table, and they compare number of firms, number of businesses, you know, salaries. So here's the top cities. Number
1: one, Salt Lake City, Utah. Accountancy jobs are growing particularly fast in Salt Lake City. Known as the Crossroads of the West, this metro area boasts prime winter sports destinations, a burgeoning tech industry, and the nation's largest number of industrial banks. Utah's capital city, Salt Lake, leads the state's strong economic growth with a gross domestic product increase of nearly 300% from 2001 to 2021. There's branches of all the big four accounting firms. And the median income is 82,506. Projected job growth for accountants statewide is 33%. So, not bad. Number two, Miami, Florida, with a projected job growth for accountants of 23% and a median income of 62,870. There are 1,100 multinational corporations in Miami. So, if you wanna do international business, that's a great place. Number three, David, Tucson, Arizona. You made the list. You made the list. 22% projected job growth for accountants statewide. Uh, By the way, these growth projections are from 2020 to 2030. Median income, 59,215. You get that sunny climate. You get uh, lots of science and engineering jobs. Top industries include aerospace and defense, renewable energy and optics and photonics. What is photonics? No idea. Tucson's largest employer is David
0: Oh, it's Raytheon Missile Systems. Yeah, Defense you want to build yeah. you
1: want to you want to account for weapons? That's pretty cool. Number 4, Little Rock, Arkansas. 12% projected growth in accounting jobs, median income 58,441. The median home price is the least expensive on their list. And the low overall cost of living indicates that the city's accountants may see their salaries stretch further than they would in many other cities. Lots of opportunities in banking and finance, healthcare, agriculture, and government. And the uh, fifth one on the list is Tulsa, Oklahoma. Twelve percent projected job growth for accountants. Median income sixty thousand eight hundred sixty-six. You've got below average housing prices. Plenty of economic development programs in recent years to spur growth. There is a program called Tulsa Remote that is designed to attract remote workers. So if you are a remote accountant, if you want to work from home, that could be good. I think that's one where they pay you to move there, right? Like Vermont used to do. Lots of opportunities, industries such as air- energy, aerospace, manufacturing, and transportation. There are branches of all big four firms. And a full list is accessible on the Forbes site. We will link to that in the show notes. So it looks like the, the way they rank these was number of CPA offices, number of tax prep offices, number of other accounting establishments, so basically the number of firms that you could work at, the number of business establishments, CPA offices per 1,000 business establishments, and tax prep offices per 1,000, You know, basically like how, how competitive is it? The median income and median home price, and then rent and unemployment. And then the definition of a living wage. So it's 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 it looks like a combined ranking of those things. Um shall I go through the, the the rest of the top ten real quick? We've got Honolulu at six, Springfield at seven, Denver at eight, Albuquerque at nine, and Oklahoma City at number ten.
0: We're we're just to scroll down quick. Where's New York City fall in? Where's LA fall in? Just for perspective. Is it even unless Let's they only see. show the top twenty five in that New
1: York. 72.
0: 72.
1: So this is funny, right? Because everyone's like, oh, I got to go to New York. I got to go to- New York know. and
0: Boston, right? Are the big-
1: Yeah, I got to go to Los Angeles. So Los Angeles is 41. It's because of the cost of living. You know, if you're yeah. an accountant, accounting is not a job you get because you want a high salary. It's because you want the job security. And I think if you want the job security, you probably want to be able to buy a house too. So go someplace where you can actually afford to buy a house, right? Chicago, 61.
0: Work remotely, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I was talking about Trump earlier, and I know Trump supporters are going to be upset if I'm not fair and balanced in my coverage. So the good news is we have plenty of corruption on both sides of the aisle (laughs) this week. Yes. And, And it resulted in the funniest headline I've ever seen in the Wall Street Journal. Yes, I kid you not. There was a funny headline in the Wall Street Journal. That headline is... The right amount of cash to keep at home for emergencies. Hint, not (laughs) (laughs) $480,000. Yeah. So for those of you who missed it, um, this is one of the best fraud stories I've ever heard. Senator Menendez from New Jersey, his home was raided and the feds found $480,000 in cash in his house like sewn into jackets with his name on them, like hidden all over the place. I mean, the guy's saying that he didn't take bribes, but why else would you have $480,000 just sitting around in your house?
0: But wasn't he convicted once before in the past? I think he, he got away with th- it
1: in the past, right? Oh, he, he
0: He's been- They found not guilty or they yeah, okay. He's been
1: implicated yeah. in the past. Implicated. And, yeah. Oh, they also found Jeepers. gold bars in his house, right? So <laughs> Wall Street Journal- uh, did the smart thing, which is rather than writing a codgery old man sounding yelling, you know, on his lawn kind of opinion piece. They got these two uh, writers, uh, Anne Turguson and Jeremy Olshan to write a, a personal finance piece about how much cash should you have at home for emergencies? Do you really need $480,000 at home? Uh, David well, I probably shouldn't ask you this in case you do have lots of cash at home because, you know, somebody listening might decide to rob you, but I'm going to assume you don't have massive amounts of cash at home.
0: No. And, and I've thought about it a lot. I've said, oh, I was like, oh, every week I should put like, you know, or every other week put a 50 or a hundred dollar bill, you know, in the safe and just, just in case there's another pandemic again, or who knows, right? It never happens. There's no cash in the safe whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so. So um, I don't keep, I I barely
1: have enough cash like in my wallet to pay for something if my credit card doesn't work. It's like dangerous, right? So when I travel, I have to take cash out of the ATM just in case I take, you know, a hundred bucks out. Um, So, you know, how much should you keep? Um, Experts suggest, according to the Wall Street Journal's research, that you should have two weeks to two months of living expenses in cash at home. Now, I don't know about you, but two months of living expenses in cash would be like thousands of do- I guess I guess I guess that doesn't count the stuff that you you know pay out through your bank account automatically like your mortgage and stuff right because I couldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't want to have like enough money to pay my mortgage sitting at home in a safe so I guess I guess it's talking about like your you know living expenses so they suggest having two to f- two weeks to two months of living expenses in cash at home this ensures access to money if ATMs and credit cards don't work people in hurricane I think yeah
0: you probably should keep enough for like a plumber like what if a plumber's like i only really take cash and like you're in a situation, you should at least keep enough to pay a plumber. It's <laughs> probably the wisest. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: it should be. So if you live in a hurricane or wildfire zone, you may want to have more cash available. Like like when we lived in Florida, uh, you know, hurricanes are a regular thing there. You want to have cash because if you can't take a credit card, you still want to be able to buy, you know, your, your gas or you want to be able to buy food for several weeks. Um, the problem is storing large amounts of cash at home invites theft, so you should keep the money in a fireproof safe and split it up in different hiding spots. Having an emergency fund with three to six months of expenses is still recommended, but that should be in an interest-bearing account, not cash at home, especially when interest rates are rising. Yeah, most Americans don't need nearly as much as the $480,000 found in a senator's home. The key is having enough accessible cash for basics like food, shelter, and repairs in a disaster, while keeping the bulk in an emergency fund uh, in secure accounts. A few hundred to two months of expenses is recommended based on personal circumstances.
0: I know why he did it, why right he of the cash there, but it's because the government's going to shut down. And if you're a government employee and you don't get a paycheck, you need access to some cash. Like, this is this is the reason he was doing this. It was, that, it was truly his emergency fund. <laughs> yeah,
1: but, but you told us last week, David, that the uh, senators... And Congress people still get paid. They still, and get, paid. Shutdown. Exactly. They, they still get paid. That is messed up. That is messed up.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay. Between Blake and myself, we now have three, four, or maybe five business entities, 20 or so checking accounts, and dozens and dozens of virtual cards. It would be impossible to manage all of this if we weren't using Relay as our small business bank. Relay is truly a part of the tech stack we use to run our businesses. Relay allows Blake and I to each have our own logins, we can grant access to our team, and even our accountant without sharing passwords or two-factor authentication codes. Relay allows us to grow and scale our banking needs without ever going into a physical branch. I recently added an account to receive inbound merchant services with just a few clicks, and I had to create a payroll checking account, again, just a few clicks, and I instantly had access to my ACH info to give to my payroll provider. With Relay's virtual cards, we can issue debit cards to our team around the world for needed business expenses. I can instantly spin up a new Visa debit card and set both daily and monthly spending limits. And when a team member doesn't need their card, I can freeze it until they need to use it again. To learn more about using Relay in your firm and with your clients. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo/relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo/relay. But there was breaking news this morning at five a.m. Um, Our friend Kelly Phillips-Erb wrote a blog post or an article on Forbes uh, with the latest. So they're saying, so this was as of 5 a.m. this morning. uh, She's saying now the plan is two-thirds of the IRS is going to shut down if the government shutdown happens, which I think is today, right? Because today's Friday and there's no more days left. Um, So it's probably going to happen. With that said, uh, she gets into a little, they're going to, one-third, so 30,000 will still perform services. Um, so the commissioner stays, some people at the tax advocate service, 3,000 criminal investigations will stay, 5,000 IT-related workers. The one that was a little confusing, and I asked Kelly to clarify it, it says 10,000 customer service representatives will main in, remain in place to handle phones and paper service issues. But it was like noted that only if the shutdown happens during filing season. So I asked Kelly, like, can they clarify what filing season is? Does this mean on October 16th they shut down the phones? Does this? And she said that probably means through January, uh, end of January, they they keep the phones open then shut them down. Now, let's play a game, and I'm going to share a graph, or share my screen. Okay. With all our listeners here, so this is a chart of the previous shutdowns, and as you see over time, the shutdowns keep getting longer and longer and longer, because our politics like you just covered both sides of the aisle are more divided than ever. So the last shutdown was 50 days, let's see. 35,
1: 35, 35 days. 35. But before that, the longest shutdown had been 21 days under Bill Clinton.
0: 21 days. So let's play a little game and we have our our live audience here. How many days do you think this is going to go on for when this shuts down, which it thinks it's. it looks like it's going to shut down. And while you're doing that, I'll just kind of frame up some numbers for you it's for perspective. They own, the house only has 24 sessions in the next 90 days. And to put that in perspective, they had 12 in July, zero in August, and 11 in September. And if you look at the calendar, you got some holidays in there, when are they going to resolve this? So right? you're just gonna be yeah. 50, 90 days, it's gonna roll to the f- after the first of the year, because before they let it roll over Christmas and New Year's, right So, what are people's guesses
1: uh christopher in the chat said two weeks top two weeks tops i think that the fact that that the tax deadline the individual tax deadline is coming up could actually put pressure because that will seriously affect people if the irs is you know two-thirds shut down
0: well you still have to file they don't care they're not extending the deadline
1: uh, David Hall says zero days every year has last minute deals worked out this same topic every year for federal employees. Brian says 11 days. James says 69 days.
0: Um, I'm coming at the 45 to 50, I think in my
1: brain. You think we're going to set a record? Is it going to be like the, uh, it's the so Phoenix, divided. the it's Phoenix temperature record, 50, something days of 110, 110 degree, more than 110 degrees. It's oh. just
0: when you look at the calendar, you're like, they don't work enough to yeah. solve this.
1: David says, David Scully says, 47 days, GOP leadership in disarray. And nobody wants to pay the price to defect to join Dems to get anything done. Uh, Tino says, less than 30 days. Linnell says, 30 days. All right. We've got our survey complete. So there's a quite a range. Anywhere from zero to 69 days. Hey, you mentioned Kelly at Richmond Pope. And I saw a video featuring Kelly Richmond Pope.
0: Well, I would say Kelly uh, Phillips Herb. Oh, that yeah, was Kelly so Phillips Herb. No,
1: Sorry, Erb. another Kelly then.
0: Another Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> I got I, you mentioned Kelly
1: Richmond Pope. Well, yeah. so Kelly, it was the three names that got me.
0: Uh, oh, that's oh Kelly point. Phillips Herb.
1: Yes. Kelly Richmond Pope. Well, so different Kelly was featured in a video by the big think on YouTube. This is a general knowledge educational channel. It has 41,000 views. And the title of this video is More Accountants Are Leaving the Field Than Joining. What's Going On? More mainstream coverage of the accounting talent crisis. This video is about four minutes long. We're not going to play the whole thing. I just want to play the beginning because it's really well produced. What would the world without accountants look like?
2: What would the world without accountants look like? I think it would be the wild, wild west in business. When you think about what an accountant does, a CPA does, what an auditor does, they're the ones that are telling you, you can trust me. You can invest with me. You can lend to me. An auditor gives me assurance. If they go away, who can you trust? This is really not a far off question, because when you look at the data, just in the past two years, 300,000 accountants have left the field. That's a huge, huge number. There are less students choosing accounting as a major. There are less students sitting for the certified public accounting exam. There are more people retiring out of the field that are coming into the field. Who's gonna do your tax returns if you don't have any CPAs or accountants? i think what's changed is the way we work we didn't predict the growth in other areas so many professionals that might have once majored in accounting have gravitated to these other fields we would have never known that social media would be a major that ESG would be a major, cybersecurity would be a major. A lot of the IT jobs would be what they are today. We probably took our eye off the ball a little bit, and now we're playing catch up. One of our hindrances, we have something called the 150 hour requirement. If you major in accounting, you have to have 150 credit hours before you can sit for the CPA exam. And so that has made college longer and more expensive. There's a lot of kids that go to graduate school, and they wanna get their MBA. But now what you're having to do is you have to go to graduate school, get a master's in accounting, and if you wanna go get an MBA, you gotta go back to graduate school to get that. Things are gonna have to change in order to appeal to a group of Gen Z learners that want to work differently. So what we've seen is organizations really starting to pay for that fifth year of college. Offering scholarship dollars for students to go back, stay in school. We'll pay for your fifth year. We'll pay for you to sit for the CPA exam. We'll pay for your study materials. We just want to get you through. So you're starting to see organizations push to help students in a way that you didn't see in the past.
0: So, I- so go ahead, David. Uh, can you wrap? Some, it, it, I agree. It's really well done. Um, it's very clearly communicated. But who's the target? Like, who's seeing this video? Who are they pushing this to? Or what's the context around the video? I mean, it's it's the big
1: think YouTube channel with six point one million subscribers. And... So it's like
0: a, a YouTube. Ch- I've never seen this channel. So it's a YouTube channel that they just bring big ideas, different ones, yeah, every week or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like
1: that kind of those kind of p- think pieces.
0: Okay, so yeah. people who are like they people that think of themselves as deep thinkers and they like to see big world problems, they tune into this channel. And now, yeah. we've we've reached that level.
1: Yeah, that it's reached okay. general consciousness here.
0: This is related. We could just look at the graph. I don't need to talk about the story, but this was p- bouncing all over um, social media this week. I probably, you probably saw this, the, the graph of people with six years of experience more leaving the accounting industry. Six years or more.
1: Yeah, it's, it's and it,
0: skyrocketed. It, it, it's unbelievable.
1: It almost um, over 80%, approaching 85% of the people who left in the last 12 months had more than six years of experience.
0: And we don't have to we don't have to get into it too much. I well, think so, well, I don't want to derail. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. We do, and I we think do. we have an interview coming up, and we're going we'll have a whole but, other episode, even more on 150 stuff. But it's so it's just public knowledge now. It's amazing how this is again Wall Street Journal. I
1: just want to point out one of the comments on the Big Think video. Okay, um, this is this is the top comment. I'm a CPA. I'm hoping and praying the trend continues. Hopefully this decline in supply partially offsets that decline in demand caused by continuously improving accounting software. It's already putting a lot of accountants out of work. I could see a future AI mastering accounting principles relatively easy since they are logic-based. And this is my least favorite <laughs> response to the shortage of accountant trend is people saying it makes my CPA more valuable. I'm going to get paid more. Well, guess what? So far, it hasn't led to you getting paid more. It's just led to you doing more work and being overwhelmed and not getting paid more, but having worse quality of life. So I, my, my worry is that if you have too few CPAs, the market will decide we don't need CPAs anymore because they're too expensive, you know, they're too hard to find, and they're going to take away... Our monopoly on the one thing that we have a monopoly on, which is audit, right? Audit will go; will be given to others. It'll be opened up to others, and and that's how the CPA dies. If you don't, if you don't produce enough product to serve the market, the market will go elsewhere. And so, this is just short short term thinking. Also, it's not uh, like it's it's not it's very selfish thinking as well. I mean, come on. Like we are accountants, we are CPAs, we are supposed to protect the public interest, and we are failing to do that. Audits are failing to protect investors. Um, The quality has declined. The usefulness of financial statement information has declined over the last 100 years. It's gotten more complex, more expensive. It hasn't gotten better. So this is extremely selfish. Another comment here. My mom is an accountant. She said she wouldn't pay for our college if we majored in accounting. (laughs) I got my degree in accounting and skipped the public accounting slash CPA route, thankfully. I work as a mid-level construction project accountant for a big real estate developer. There is no way the tasks of my job can be done by a robot, and none of my managers ever worked in public or got CPA and make well in the six figures. Yeah, it's got a lot of comments on it. I think those who are leading our profession should look at this video and go read the comments. Hey podcast listeners, it's Blake and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We got too much to get stuck on 150 and the future of the profession. Let's keep moving. Uh,
0: I'd love to talk about the IRS revolving door. Okay. Issue, Let's do it. Because that. like, it, it, that's the boring part of the story, actually. There's an exciting <laughs> part of the story. <laughs> but um, you have brought this up before. You know, people work for the big four. They go to work for the PCAOB. They go back to work for the big four, right? And then because of that, they don't, you know, they're all buddies, right? Same thing happens. People work for a big four. They go to the IRS. They go back to the big four. They go back to the IRS. Well, our favorite, uh, Senator Warren. So she and- uh, Your best friend. United States represent, and <laughs> a Democrat from Washington, uh, Pamela Jaya Apal. She's a representative for, from the House. They wrote another letter to Danny Rufield, commissioner of the IRS, and calling this out, right? And then they, the same letter, similar to the letter they sent to H&R Block and TurboTax um, and all the, all the big tax prep companies. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. And basically that that report between 2017, 2021, 496 IRS employees, right? Or 15% of the uh, workforce came from large accounting firm or large corporate office. Say that right? percentage
1: joined... again. What percentage
0: of the IRS workforce? 15% of the workforce came from a large corporation or... A uh, large accounting firm before joining the IRS, during their time at the IRS, or after leaving the IRS. So it's a pretty broad window. Like they, yeah, if, but that's only only but, 15%. That's not that bad. That is a weird number that they present it that way. Um, but the real one that's the shocking stat with this is in this investigation, at least 18 IRS employees worked on a private letter rulings in which the accounting firm they worked for either immediately before or after the time at the IRS were the taxpayer's representative. So we have ex-firm, Blake, representing us. Mm-hmm. Somebody else at that firm works for that IRS, they make the ruling on our tax issue. Ah, uh,
1: yeah. I see that. And I that, see the problem there.
0: That, that, that could be a problem. And so what's happening right now is there is a uh, IRS hearing and they, uh, it's for a new chief counsel. Her name's uh, Marjorie Rulinson, And so she recently exited for EY as its national tax deputy leader. Prior to that, she worked as the associate chief counsel, international and deputy associate chief counsel at the IRS um, after formally working at EY as the principal in the firm's national tax department and national tax director of services, technical co-chair of the firm's international tax technical committee. So she's been bouncing back and forth, and Senator Warren uh, called her out for this um, and said uh, – Ms. Robinson, you've gone through the revolving door more than once. You've gone from Ernest and Young to the IRS, then from the IRS back to Ernest and Young, and once again from Ernest and Young back to the but, IRS.
1: David, you <laughs> said Ernest,
0: but it's, it's Ernst. Oh, Ernst. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Corrected. Tanker. <laughs> Delete this whole thing. Start over. No. And, you want to do
1: another take there?
0: Another take. And then she says, I think that's a red flag. So- Elizabeth Warren's calling this up. But part of this, they started calling out other data in this committee meeting. Um, so the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, he's a Democrat in Oregon. He had he called out other things in a different letter. So this is the crazy numbers. A thousand taxpayers that earn over a million a year failed to file returns over multiple recent years. Some p- owing potentially 34 billion in taxes. So basically people just don't file taxes. They just don't care.
1: And they get away with um, it?
0: And they get away with it. They said the top 500 high income individuals who still have not filed returns for each year from 2017 to 2020, so that's three years they have not filed returns, uh, Oh, $923 million. Wow. They just are not, and then- it's like of,
1: 923, like, so like-
0: Yeah, only 58 of the 2,000 that are under active investigation have been subjected to financial penalties, liens or levies, that's it. Wow. Like, nobody gets in trouble. And then they said that 1.4 million wealthy tax cheats still have not filed retired tax returns. Um, totally amount of unpaid taxes is uh, uh estimated to be sixty-five point seven billion dollars. Like these are just crazy numbers. They, rich people just aren't paying taxes. They're just blowing up. It's messed it off.
1: up. That's really messed up. Going back to audit, David, I want to call out a big change that the PCAOB is making. Under Chair Williams, the PCOB has been really cracking down on audit firms and has approved a new rule to tighten requirements around how audit firms obtain and verify external evidence from clients. This is a huge change. It's the first major update to confirmation requirements since PCOB adopted them in 2003. Under the new rule, Audit firms will have to receive confirmation that stated amounts for cash and cash equivalents held by third parties and accounts receivable are accurate. They can no longer rely solely on negative confirmation and assume that silence means the amounts are correct. So, David, what that means is when the audit firm when the audit firm is auditing cash and cash equivalents, like the amount you have at your bank account, David, they will send a confirmation letter to that bank. Or if they're auditing AR, they will send a confirmation letter to your biggest customers and say, here's the amount that we show that that X company that David is, is saying you know, he has on his balance sheet. Is, does this match your records? And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, people just throw those letters in the trash and they never respond. And under the current rule, The auditors can take that as confirmation. So the fact that you didn't dispute it means that it must be right. That it's enough evidence that it's right. So So, now-
0: I can provide a fake bank statement. If they try to verify the fake bank statement and they never get a response, it must be a true bank statement. That's the previous law. It's kind of amazing that it was that loose. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know,
1: because- the the problem is most of the time these confirmations you know don't get an answer. Now this is a big change for that. So you know the question is um, what will happen? Like if if auditors have to actually receive a positive confirmation, how are they going to do it? Especially when we've got this talent crisis. I personally I think it's a good thing that we should have positive confirmation, not just like negative confirmations. Uh, but then the question is how do you actually practically do it? Um, the rule also says that you cannot rely on the internal auditors as the external auditor in selecting items for confirmation, sending requests, or handling responses. So like you said, David, those fake, fake bank statements, like if the internal auditor gives me some false information, right, I can't just rely on that. I have to actually do my own investigation as, a, uh, as, a, as an external auditor. The Institute of Internal Auditors objected the, to the proposal as implying internal auditors are untrustworthy. <laughs> In response, the PCAOB emphasized external auditors' obligations rather than restrictions on external auditors. So that is a huge change um, to how confirmations are going to be done. I really wonder what the impact is going to be. But it you know, seems like a reasonable thing. That's just my hot uh, Did they take.
0: give suggestions on how they would do it? Like, do you... Do, oh, like no, to, you know, PCAOB. The FDIC will do it. They'll be able to make requests from the FDIC, and then they'll provide the information. No. No. Right. Do, do you want to move from the PCAOB to uh, PB&J? PB&J? My PB&J? Son, my son is basically
1: like 85% PB&J because that's his favorite thing. He eats one every day, sometimes twice a day. So, yes. I am curious to know what PB&J has to do with accounting.
0: Yeah, so I saw this was an opinion piece in Accounting Today by Kyle Walters. Uh, he's a partner in LH and CPAs and Advisors. And the title of the article was What CPAs Can Learn from Schmuckers? You know, the jelly, the jam, right? Schmuckers jam. And just like every other company post-pandemic, Schmuckers, you know, had to have people back in the office. Everybody's going through this, return to the office, no more remote, right? But they really went around it consciously and they figured out that they have about 22 weeks of the year where people really have to be full-blown site, right? Um, but then the rest of the year, the other 30 weeks, live and work anywhere you want, they figured out. And Kyle's argument is that we at accounting firms should think about this because we have our peak weeks where you really need all hands on deck, working in the office and i just thought it was a the the real piece is about being deliberate with your work from home policy so many people are like yeah two days a week three days a week and and making figuring that that model out is really interesting i don't know if you saw the article if you had thoughts well i do have some thoughts so they're saying it's like a week on and then a week off
1: because it's 20 weeks a year in the office well i don't think it's every other week well It's certain weeks though, like it's designated weeks where you have to be in the office. Maybe before school
0: starts, they gotta make more jelly and peanut butter. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So to me as a parent, I would find this difficult because my schedule is around every day. So I need to know week to week, like the same days, like when I can pick up my kid from school or not and if i have to be in the office for a week and then off for a week and then in the office for a couple of weeks and then off i can't arrange that that doesn't work for me so it also limits how far you can live from the office because if you're going to have to commute every day for a week or two you know living 2 hours away might be impossible whereas if you knew you only had to go in one or two days a week you could make that trade off so i'm not yeah. sh- i'm not so hot on this idea Personally, I, I, I mean, I could see why, I can see why management would like it because when people are there, they're really working. So you have like these sprints, basically, as a company. And I assume this Which is management, of... right? This is not the factory workers.
0: Because I, I think we, you know, we have these. You have January. You got the deadline. You know, September, October deadlines. So I think this is happening naturally. Yeah. But it's like, how do you make it to where? Why still make somebody in those slower times, why make them come in at all? Yeah. Right? Maybe, maybe that's the way to view this.
1: Uh, um, let's pivot to AI, shall we? In the time yeah. we have left. Amazon has invested $4 billion on Anthropics Claude, the chatbot platform rivaling ChatGPT and Google's Bard. This was reported in Venture Beat. I am a big user of Claude and proponent of Claude. I find it to have the best natural tone and writing of any of the AIs, uh, better than ChatGPT, And it was the first one to allow you to upload large PDFs. So I've been using it to analyze legal decisions and to put an entire podcast transcript into Claude and create content. So Amazon is investing in Anthropic. This bodes really well for Alexa. Oop, I didn't set her <laughs> off. Okay, good. Shh. Yeah, so Microsoft invested $10 billion in OpenAI. Now Amazon is investing $4 billion in in Claude. I think this is really good news for anyone who is on AWS for your products because the partnership is going to give Anthropic access to AWS cloud computing capabilities to help build and scale Claude. And in return, Anthropic is going to make Claude's foundation models available on Amazon's Bedrock platform. So most of the startups in our space are on AWS, and now they're going to have access to Claude on AWS, powering their apps.
0: That makes that's really a competitive advantage, because like so many, especially in our space, so many of the startups. I, I'd say if you go to the QuickBooks app store, ninety percent of all those apps are running on
1: AWS. Yeah, it's the it's the the number one platform, right? Azure is after that by far. Yeah, yeah, and so basically. Now AWS and Azure companies are going to have built-in like API kind of stuff for like ways to use these generative AI tools. Uh, Here's another AI story. The Pentagon budget is so bloated that it needs an AI program to navigate it. We've talked about how the Pentagon can't pass an audit, right? Has never been fully audited before. Can't produce financial statements, consolidated financial statements. Uh, the Intercept.com reported that the Pentagon created an AI system to navigate its own complex bureaucratic policies and budget rules. The program is called Game Changer, and they need it in order to understand the DOD's hundreds of revisions and limitations in the budget. Reading all of the policies would be like reading War and Peace over 100 times. The good news is that AIs like Game Changer have no problem reading War and Peace 100 times. It can make sense of over 15,000 Pentagon policy documents and helps officials understand budget rules and restrictions. Pretty neat, actually, Use neat use case to overcome government bureaucracy and complexity. It has so far been used by over 6,000 DoD users to answer over 100,000 policy queries. It is one of hundreds of AI projects funded by the Pentagon. So we don't know how exactly this works, but basically, I'm guessing they they took all the DoD budget and all the all the laws that congress has passed, right? They stuck it into an LLM like and and made a customized chatbot for the DOD personnel. So they they so can, can... D- they can do what I'm doing where it's like I upload a single PDF and I query that PDF. They've uploaded all the DOD documentation and now DOD personnel can query it and get so, answers
0: in English. So am I allowed to purchase this $600 toilet seat? <laughs> They'll go check all the policies. Like, no, I'm not allowed to do that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. and I bring this up because I think this is a real thing. I think the military like was buying $600 toilet seats somewhere.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I think it's yeah. a real thing. That's just cost accounting, David. That's not real. <laughs> um, Deloitte's CEO says he doesn't deserve his pay.
0: Did you hear that one? This goes back- Not at all. That that seems like that would be a headline all over uh, Going Concern. I'm surprised- It was. It was. This was was. from Going Concern.
1: Okay. Um, So this is the CEO at PwC Australia. PwC Australia is under fire, of course, for leaking government tax plans to their private company clients, uh, basically uh, cheating on the government with their other clients, which is totally unethical and illegal. and. The CEO of PwC was hauled before the Australian, do they have a Congress? Something, lawmakers, and was questioned. Um, Deloitte Australia CEO Adam Powick admitted that he's not worth his $3.5 million salary. He was questioned, like, do you deserve it? And he said, he's not worth it. It's a Senate inquiry in Australia. Yeah, so here's the, let's see. Are you really worth seven times the salary of the Australian prime minister, she asked. No, he answered. I happen to deeply recognize that I'm incredibly privileged to earn what I do for what I do. He makes $3.5 million a year. The average partner comp is over. Well, it doesn't say that actually. It says that PwC Australia has 304 partners making $1 million or more. The highest paid partner earns 4.45 million, 4.5 million. They make a lot of money there. But it's funny that he admitted, he, he, like, said he doesn't deserve it. I feel like that wouldn't happen in this country. You know, in the U.S., you, you double down. You say, of course I'm worth that.
0: We protect them. <laughs> you know how hard I worked? Yeah. I have these three letters. <laughs> That's what he should have said. I have the letters. I did my 150 hours. Uh, do you want to, like, I know we're kind of run over a couple minutes. I think I have to get on a meeting. But um, we have a couple of, do you want to cover a couple of quick things? Listener mail, oh, yeah, you want to yeah, talk yeah. about some of the interviews we have coming up? I don't know. I'll let you on the last three, four minutes. Here. Well, we
1: did get a bunch of listener mail, and I really do want to get to that. Um, so, this is a comment that we had on YouTube. So, there's a, there's a short video that we put on YouTube called Why We Have a CPA Shortage, talking about like the low pay and the long hours and all that stuff. And one commenter named LS, username LS, said this. Many undergrad accounting programs, I believe, are so regimented in teaching this incomplete curriculum, they don't tie in their concepts to the broader business world, at least at the start. Then many students get blindsided when they get to intermediate accounting and are still unclear as to what the real expectations are when they get to the real world, almost as if it's done by design to weed out otherwise smart and capable students. This kind of flawed setup would discourage would-be accounting students from moving forward and entering the field itself. There goes another reason for the shortage. Want to solve this shortage and save the profession? Get students learning about general business management activities and decision-making first. Then learn the basic accounting with debits and credits. Then get them doing a bookkeeping job. Establish mentorship programs if professors would be inclined to, then move from there. And I completely agree. I was working as a bookkeeper while I was taking my accounting classes, and so I got to apply what I was learning in beginning and intermediate accounting in the real world, and I don't know how I would have learned that stuff in theory without doing it in the real world. It's a huge missing piece in our accounting education. Um, so much of it is so theoretical. And you know why, why I think that is? It's because a lot of these professors have never worked in the real world. They've done like a year in public accounting, and then they go on and they become <laughs> PhDs.
0: They've done, they have less experience than anyone else. In the real world of of accounting. This is why I never finished school. I just could not. It drove me crazy. (laughs) I'd be working with people that have not had a job and it would just make me crazy. Oh, yeah. Like at the time I had two jobs when I was in school and it made me bonkers. It was, it was, it's,
1: it's nuts. And you know, it was the same way when I was in music, when I studied music, the PhDs had the least practical experience working as musicians and were thus terrible at actually telling you how to perform in the real world, you know, how to, how to do the job. And I just find academia to be disappointing in that way, really like totally out of touch in Ivory Tower. And I feel like in accounting, we've gotten that way. And that's why when kids come out of school, they don't know anything about how to do anything. They've just learned a bunch of theory. And it's, you know, I'm sorry, but if you're a professor and you disagree with me, put it in the comments, send me an email. (laughs) We are the Accounting Podcast at earmark.me. I know there are professors out there and teachers out there who are, Uh, teaching their students about how to do stuff in the real world and have plenty of experience. And I think like the adjunct professors who have worked in accounting for years are the best teachers. Uh, Gary Krause um, was my intermediate accounting professor at UCLA and he's a partner at Gershey Snyder and he was amazing at actually taking the theory and applying it to real life. And those are the people that I want to learn from. So... David, that's all the time we have for this week. Um, we'll get to the rest of the listener mail another time. Again, you can email us the Accounting Podcast at earmark.me. Follow us on YouTube. Become uh, help us get to three thousand subscribers, and you can follow me. I'm at Blake T. Oliver
0: on all the social medias. David, you are. I'm just at David Leary. Easy to find. And do we have any events coming up that we should talk about? Uh, we're going to Sweet World in October. I think they're calling Cooper's it Cloud exact. World now. For cloud world. Yeah. It's the Netsuite Oracle Oracle's Netsuite conference, mm-hmm. whatever the current name is at this moment. <laughs> I'll have to double check on that. Uh, QuickBooks Connect in November, and then Digital CPA in December. And I think you are sneaking to AcuityCon, maybe. Yes, our Some friends at there?
1: Acuity have invited me to come speak there, so I'll be in Atlanta at AcuityCon. Um, shout out to all of our listeners from Acuity, and a few other little things. We'll talk about it in the future. Um, all right. With that. Thanks to everyone who joined us live. Great to see you all. Romeo, Adam, David, hope to see you here next time.
0: Hi everyone. Time for the classifieds. Sick of waiting for same-day ACH transfers that stick to bank hours or paying high fees for credit cards? Stop settling with slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly, America's first accessible instant payment solution. With Forwardly, accountants in the USA can receive small business payments instantly, 24-7, 365 days a year, manage cash flow, and simplify accounting with automatic reconciliation. With generous partner rewards, ridiculously low fees, and no monthly charge, you can start thinking forwardly at forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Your accounting firm is buzzing with new hires. They're eager, they're promising, they say they know QuickBooks inside and out, but soon you're seeing red flags. Errors keep creeping into the work and once again, you're in the trained, correct, repeat cycle. Break free with royal wise owls. Alisa katz Pollock, one of Ignition's 2023 top 50 women in accounting, developed a comprehensive QuickBooks training platform with live webinars and on-demand courses enabling your staff to learn QBO while earning CPE. Their bronze, silver, and gold memberships range from core QBO courses and discussion groups to unlimited video library access, monthly coaching sessions, and exclusive discounts. Kickstart your journey towards a QuickBooks savvy workforce today by visiting royalwise.com. That's royalwise.com. Most firm owners are busier than they wanna be because they feel like they have to work long hours to keep their firms running. But according to CPA Ryan Lozanis, that's not necessary. Ryan built a multi seven-figure firm that didn't require him to work nights or weekends. And just five years after starting his firm, Ryan sold it to a major international organization for a hefty profit. His secret is a special six-part system. And right now he's teaching 700 plus busy firm owners to implement this system in their own firms so they can scale revenue and spend more time with family and friends learn more about Ryan's special six-part system that lets firm owners grow their revenue and their free time, go to futurefirmaccelerate.com slash CAP. That's futurefirmaccelerate.com slash CAP. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.